Jesus has now come to a, a place to where he's really beginning to speak to the hearts of the issues that are probably some of the deepest that humankind faces. And as you look at this Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus and the disciples, this great multitude, are gathered there, as they're scattered out, you can imagine, after the last several verses that we covered last Sunday night, and you've heard that it's been said of those of old, you should not commit adultery. The the Lord is really doing a teaching from the Ten Commandments. He's reminding the people that are gathered that what he said about not erasing even one yacht, one tittle, one of the smallest punctuation marks of God's character, his nature, who God is, who he's always been. Jesus works through, but I say to you, that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. And then he gives this incredible decisive action plan. Look, if it's a problem for you, cut it off, cut it out, get rid of it. Be done with it. Be done with it. Be done with sin. And here's why. Sin begets sin. When you begin to walk on a path of sin, when you begin to walk in darkness, when you begin to go the way of the world, it becomes so easy to justify the next steps. It becomes just a small movement to then continue on in this life. And so very often you see sinful behaviors coupled one with another. You see the person who maybe has a problem with alcohol that ultimately ends up in some form of sexual sin, that ends up in adultery, that ends up in a divorce. And that is the picture that's being presented here. You you can either walk in the light as he is in the light. You can either take that new life that we have in Christ and to begin to walk in it. Or you can say, eh, I know better. Have another plan. And so tonight as we look at the dangers of divorce, there is perhaps nothing that our country faces that has more wide and far-reaching effect in a negative way to the average family, to the average believer, to the Christian and to the non-Christian alike than that of divorce. It virtually leaves us, as I shared a number of times, we would ask again for a show of hands. There's probably not a single person in here who doesn't at least know someone who's been touched by divorce. And chances are that within one, maybe two movements of a generation, it, it literally would be that close to all of us. 
I come from a divorced family. And if your right hand causes you, it says there in verse 30, to sin. Notice that Jesus shifted gears just a little bit. And he generalized it. He said if, you're, if your right hand, your favored hand, your, your glorious hand, your, your most proud appendage, if you want to look at it that way, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. Throw it away. Get rid of it. Deal decisively with sin because sin will beget sin. And before we really dig in tonight, I, I want to I bathe this in God's amazing grace. Because remember that who we are as God's people, are the, we're the redeemed, amen? We've been bought back from the penalty of sin and death by the grace of God. And so the Apostle Paul said to look, we who have been made alive are also supposed to be dead to the old man. We're supposed to walk in that newness of life. So God's grace is available. And that's what God wants to deliver to us. But there are some serious consequences to sin. And I would imagine in a crowd this size that there's probably somebody here tonight maybe many, who either have been or maybe even currently are contemplating divorcing their spouse. Tonight, in God's grace, I want to speak to that issue. For the rest of you, this is instruction for when someone comes to you, because these are the words of Jesus. When someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm thinking of leaving my husband because he doesn't make enough money. I'm thinking of leaving my wife because, you know, that extra 20 pounds, she just doesn't look like she looked when we got married. Yeah, I really don't feel like staying married to my my spouse, you know. They're verbally abusive. And by the way, I'm not suggesting for a moment that any of those things that I've just mentioned are actually okay with God. But Jesus was clearer on the issue of divorce than he was on the issue of heaven. He was clearer on the issue of divorce than he was on heaven. You see, he wasn't out of time. He wasn't out of touch. He was then and is tonight still God. And he has God's view on the subject. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we gather in this place, God, another passage and they just seem to come rapid fire and they speak to the issues of our day and time the cultural issues of our day and our time and lord we can imagine the pharisees we can imagine the sadducees we can imagine 
the legalists just wringing their hands, crying out, well, at least I'm not like one of them. But God, the plain and simple fact of the matter is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we do want to walk with you, and we do want to walk uprightly with you. And so, Lord, instruct us, encourage us, strengthen us. I pray, God, if there is a single person here tonight that's contemplating divorce, God, that these words would ring true. God, that you'd set them free, that you'd cause them to know that you can heal anything. If you can buy us back from sin and death, you can heal anything, Lord. You can forgive anything. Let us have your heart. We bless you. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 31 here in Matthew 5. And furthermore. Furthermore is a conjunction. Much like therefore is a conjunction. It looks backwards. But it looks backwards in a very specific way. It's a continuation. Therefore, looks back at something as a singular thought and adds to it. But when you see the word translated furthermore, it looks back at that thought and adds to it. In other words, these things are linked. They're joined together. And obviously you can see the connection. He's already spoken to the issue of adultery and what that does to a marriage. He's now going to speak to the most common outfall of that sexual sin. And again, I remind you tonight's message will be at times PG-13. Furthermore, it's been said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So again, he's looking back, remember the statement You know it has been said of those of old, it's a continuation, but in addition to, he's making the same case. He says, you know, you guys have gotten this wrong too. It's another one of those issues that the world has one opinion. In 1957, in the United States of America, there was exactly one state that offered no-fault divorce. Tonight, all 50. We have moved in a very, very short time from marriage being sacred and binding and a covenant relationship between a man and a woman to it don't matter, period. It's a contract on a piece of paper, and it's only worth the amount of time it takes to write a new one, to tear it up. Can I remind you that when you get married, and if you get married in this church, if any of the pastors here do a wedding ceremony, that they are standing in for God. When you take your marriage vows, you take your vows before God and men. But they're before God. You're making a pledge, you're making a covenant promise to the king of the universe that you will keep those vows. There's no exclusion there simply because something goes wrong, something goes bad, something happens that is tragic or sinful. 
God has a very focused view on the issue of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, notice what Jesus says. These are the words of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Causes her to commit adultery. Jesus fully understood exactly the damage that divorce causes. The hurt, the pain. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I want to be really careful tonight because I I really, my intent surely is not to beat up the broken. But it is to very loudly proclaim the truth that Jesus is speaking here. Because God does not take lightly divorce. And as far as Jesus is concerned, there's exactly one reason that the marriage vows can be set aside. Paul adds another. But marriage is so sacred and marriage is so binding as far as God's concerned that there's exactly one reason that a marriage can, can, does not have to, can be dissolved. And that's sexual immorality. Can I ask you to look there and see if there's anything, says anything about finances? You see anything about the size of the house? Do you see that if you're husband or your wife isn't nice to you, maybe is not sexually intimate with you as many times as you would like in a given period of time, if they put on a little weight, if something happens that you don't like, they no longer, you know, they've got a criminal record, uh, do you, is anybody in the, do you see anything other than sexual immorality? The answer is there isn't anything. And Jesus was being very specific. Because in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery was death. And so Jesus makes a reference back. He said, you know, it's been said of old. He was trying to get them to remember what the penalty used to be. He said, look, it it used to be the death of both. I'm not suggesting for a moment we bring back that penalty, by the way. That would not be a good thing. He says, look, marriage is an indissolvable contract. The world has made so light of it that we don't even remember what it is that we promised to do. You turn to Malachi, the second chapter. I want you to see this in verse 16. God hates divorce. Verse 16 of Malachi 2, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment. In other words, it covers you with the stain of violence. It's a direct affront to the person. This is what he says, says the Lord of hosts, and therefore take heed 
to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now having said that, let me just make sure that you have a proper understanding. God never ordains that which he hates. God only allows that which he hates to exist. God hates sin, but he doesn't force people to sin. And so what Jesus is really saying here is this is a heart issue with God. He says, I hate this. I despise it. It's never my perfect will. Your Bible is very clear on the subject of divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to turn there, verse 10. And now to the married I command, not I but the Lord. Paul's making sure that no one confuses his words, that they're not just from him. This is what God says, and God has confirmed this over and over in Scripture. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I not the Lord say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe, and here's that second condition, there's only two, an unbelieving spouse, and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. You're able to share Christ, be Christ, be a godly influence in that unbelieving person's life. No closer relationship exists on this earth than husband and wife. And so it's, look, if that unbelieving spouse will stay with you, then stay with them. Very, very, very clear statement made by the Apostle Paul. The unbelieving wife sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if an unbeliever departs, let him depart. If a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife whether you'll save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you'll save your wife? And so there are the two conditions whereby God allows something to happen that he hates. There are no others in the entire Bible. There aren't any. And yet the church somehow has managed to pick up the court system view of divorce. Well, I'd divorce the guy too. I mean, after all, you know, I mean, look at the situation. I've had countless people come into my office and sit down and say, this is the reason that I'm leaving my spouse. And they rattle off some very long and lengthy list, laundry list of things, grievances. And when I take them to these passages, and I, I look them in the eye and I say, what does that have to do? You claim to be a Christian. What does that have to do with God's opinion of what you're about to do? We need to be concerned about God's opinion about what we do. A third passage, Mark chapter 10, verse 2, it says this. The same basic passage is covered in Matthew's gospel as well, a little bit longer in chapter 19. 
But it says there in Mark 10 and verse 2, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And you'll notice it says they were testing him. They were trying to test Jesus. Trying to see if they could catch him in something that he would transgress the law. He would go against what was said by God the Father in the Old Testament. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. And Jesus answered back and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you these precepts. In other words, he was saying, look, that wasn't God's plan. God did that for you because you have hardened hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He actually quotes the original reason for marriage. In verse 10 it goes on to say, And in the house his disciples also asked him again the same matter. It's like they thought they'd maybe get another answer out of Jesus or something. I don't know. They were a bit hard-headed at times. We're a bit hard-headed at times, aren't we? We, we kind of keep, you know, I don't know if your kids ever did this growing up, but, you know, they would go to one parent and ask a question, and that parent would say no. They'd go to the other parent, ask the same question, slightly phrased differently, and they would say no. They'd go back to the other parent and ask the same question, phrased even differently than the second question, and they'd just go back and forth until somebody finally said, uh, whatever, you just get worn out. Fine, go ahead and go over to their house, I don't care. Can I remind you that God doesn't ever change his answer, ever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not, says the Lord. So God's answer is God's answer. The disciples weren't going to get, get a different one than the Pharisees got. And he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You see, there's a lot of confused and conflicting ideas about the sanctity of marriage in our world. Amen? We have made it so cheap and so easy and so prevalent is it that when there are issues in life, very frequently have you not heard in the battle over marriage, why should marriage matter when 50% of all Christian marriages end up in divorce? And they will quote these verses. The opposing side will say, look, why should we listen to the church? Why should we hear what the Lord has to say? You know, your God isn't big enough. The problem is, God was very clear. We just don't like what he said. And so people make up their own reasons, their own thoughts about the subject. God's teaching on divorce and our understanding of it should not lead us to a deficiency in his revelation. It's sin that's clouded the minds of men. And it is not an accident that he follows his teaching on adultery with his teaching on divorce. 
Very willful. Very, very willful. God's people then were reading God's word through the lens of their own preconceptions, their carnal dispositions, their situational ethics, their existentialism. And said, look, well, you know, that's fine for everybody else. I'm sure that's actually what it says, but it doesn't apply to me. I've had so many people look me right in the eye and say, I know it says that, but I'm not doing it. I can't even tell you how many, hundreds, hundreds of people. So I know it says that. I've had pastors say that. I just don't care. I'm tired. I'm worn out. Let me give you a little clue where Jesus was coming from. How tired and how worn out do you think the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is with you at times? How tired do you think he was with national Israel? He actually told them over and over and over and over again, you have gone into the the groves of oaks and you have played the harlot. You've forsaken me. You've left your first love. Isn't that the admonition? Wasn't that what Ephesus was told? You've left your first love. You see, God takes very seriously our commitment to him because he was all in with us and remains so to this day. Aren't you glad? Because remember, marriage is a picture of our relationship with the Lord. Aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't pull out his reasonings for why you're no longer fit for the kingdom? Well, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, Jeff, I mean, after all, I mean, look at him. God could come up with all manner of reasonings why you're no longer fit to receive his grace. And they'd be justified. They'd be right. They'd be perfect, in fact. But he doesn't do that because he doesn't make promises and then not keep them. And that's what he asks of us. He asks us to suffer long. He asks us to be kind. He asks us to endure. He asks us to persevere. He asks us to press on. And here comes the biggie. Don't shoot me. He asked us to forgive. As your Father in heaven has forgiven you, so you must, Matthew 18 says, forgive those who sin against you. And let me give you a little secret about that passage in the original language. There's no qualifier. It doesn't say unless they've committed adultery. It doesn't say unless they've robbed a bank. It doesn't say unless they hit you. It doesn't say unless, you know, you really just don't like the way they look anymore. Unless you find somebody who's nicer to you. It says when we are wronged, that we are obligated by grace to be forgivers. Now let me tell you what that means in your marriage. It means there's no hurdle too high. There's no sin so great that it can't be overcome by God's grace. There's no thing that you've ever, ever gone through 
that will rise to the level of what Christ forgave you of on the cross, and that's our model. That's why God hates divorce. Because it covers us who have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ with violence. It stains what he's done for us. You see, our view of divorce very often comes from the world and not from our Bibles. From every side, the family's being attacked. Amen? You know that now in our country, more people live together than are married. Did you know that? More couples today cohabitate together, also known as live in fornication, together than are actually married. I said that for a reason. Because marriage without the commitment to marriage is not marriage. You can't just play house and think that God's okay with it. Marriage is marriage. It's a commitment that you make before God to say, this is my spouse for the rest of my days. Till death do us part. Till the end of days. That's why sometimes when I have young people and they want to write their own vows, I, I scrutinize them a little bit. So you know what? These are, these are nice. They're flowery. They're beautiful. Great poetry. But oh, by the way, you might want to actually put something in there about the sanctity of marriage. Because a vow that says, I love you like the sunshine and the flowers and the wind is not the same as I will remain with you in sickness and in health and for richer or poorer until death do we part. It's not the same. That's what God intends. Dr. Armand Nicolai is a very famous professor in the School of Psychiatry at Harvard, wrote a great book called The Fractured Family and Following It to the Future. It's an older book, but it's been updated with the statistics in it. And in that book, he identified six trends that he believed one day would destroy this country. Let me give them to you. Amazingly accurate considering the first work was written in 1979. Shortly after the height of the sexual revolution of the 60s and the early 70s. He said certain trends are prevalent today with with the will to incapacitate the family, destroy its integrity and cause the members of every family to suffer such crippling emotional effects that they will become an intolerable burden on society. Congressional Budget Office today estimates that the cost annually to the United States government for a divorce is $33.4 billion a year. Why is that? Multiple homes, multiple cars, loss of tax revenue, social services, programs, insufficient income to take care of the family's needs. And so people end up on social programs because they won't stay married. Cost of court. 
He goes on in that book to say that mothers of young children working outside the home, babies having babies is one of those conditions that would eventually destroy this country. This is 1979, folks. This is quite a while ago. But it's coming to roost in a neighborhood near us. Frequent family moves uprooting children so that they lack a moral foundation. The invasion of television as a source, substitute source, of human morality. A lack of any moral restraint within society. A lack of communication in the home between parents and children. And then the sixth one. The major cause of emotional problem in children is the divorce of their parents. Those children would become a burden on society. Divorce is dangerous. When you attempt to redefine marriage and you take it out of the context in which God designed it, you've got a failed system. Because it's the endurance that's held in a marriage that's strong that says, look, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, let's work this out. That children learn what it's like to not be narcissists. And we have raised a couple of generations now, not everyone, and I'm not picking on your kids, but there's an awful lot of narcissism in our country. Amen? We've seen multiple movements where you have all these young 20-somethings gathering together saying, you know what, no matter what I do, I'm worth 15 or $16 an hour. What my dad taught me was, you're not worth anything until you do something. You're, you're, you, you can go like everybody else and go hungry if you don't want to work. By the way, that's what the Bible says. A man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. You see, what happens is we instill this, well, if you don't like it, then you just give up on it. Something happens to you and it doesn't go your way. Well, you just get out of that relationship. There's a problem that comes up. Well, you just send your wife or your husband packing. You find somebody else that you like better than them. Well, just switch spouse, you know. It's all about you. Divorce is one of those things. It's one of the most selfish things. Not all, but many. If not most. It's one of the most selfish things that we can do to our children. Because you ask the children... If they'd rather have mom and dad stay together and stay in the home and have to listen to a couple of arguments or whether they'd like to have dad in Texas and mom in California, they'll take the arguments 100% of the time. God hates divorce. When you look at these passages I just quoted to you, There's really only four basic interpretations of that biblical data that you can look at divorce and remarriage and and come up with some conclusions. And all four of them are taught in Christian circles, and there's only one of them that's correct. 
the strictest view of, of divorce and remarriage, that divorce is never permissible under any circumstances for any reason. That is not true. Jesus made that clear. Immorality, unrepentant sin, ultimately, is at least uh, divorce is allowable. Second thing is the opposite position contends that both divorce and remarriage doesn't matter. It's permissible for any reason or no reason. A third reason is that divorce is permitted under certain circumstances, but remarriage is never permitted. And then finally, both divorce and remarriage are permitted under certain circumstances. And obviously, it's the fourth of those positions. There are certain things where God says, look, there's an innocent party, there's a guilty party, the guilty party will not repent, the guilty party has fled the marriage, and so this person who was married to this person who refuses to repent of their sin at least is freed to not be in bondage. But other than that, all of the rest of the reasons that we try and justify divorce for are not okay with God. They're not okay with God. Jesus actually affirms exactly what Moses taught in Deuteronomy 24 and says there in verse 1, when a man takes his wife and marries her and it happens to be that he finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house. And when she's departed from the house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if later the husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, in other words, she gets married again, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, if that later husband dies, who took his wife, then the former husband who has divorced her must not take her back for his wife after she's been married to another. And the reason being exactly what Jesus said. There's a problem. There's a break in the marriage vows. You see, God sees those vows as permanent, whether we see them as permanent or not. And we as the church need to remember this, and we need to stop encouraging our kids Well, you know, she was never good for you anyway. You know, he's never amounted to much. You deserve better than that, honey. You see, I've sat with those kids after they've gone through a divorce and watched them bawl their eyes out because it was their Christian mom and dad that convinced them to divorce their husband or their wife. And the hell that's unleashed in their lives lasts a lifetime. We need to be as clear on divorce as Jesus was. He hates it. You see, Jesus basically confronts these guys. He's saying, look, it's not my plan. There's nothing that can't be forgiven. There's nothing that can't be taken care of by God's grace. So don't blame it on me. Don't say that, well, I said you could have a certificate of divorce. That was an accommodation to the sinful heart of mankind. It wasn't God's plan. God accommodates a lot of things in this world, amen? If you you can't see that, we're it. Just look around the room, we're the accommodation. There's not a person in here that God could say, well, look, there are three perfect people. They sit over there in that pew all the time. We all need his grace. 
We all need his mercy. We all need his forgiveness. And there is no other way to be other than to say, oh, that which I have received, let me freely give. We have no right to be any other way as the body of Christ, do we? I mean, seriously. Is there anybody in here, if you walk with the Lord, you really think that because you've received God's grace, someone else shouldn't? Because the truth of the matter is, if your black heart could be exposed, it'd be pretty ugly. And so would mine. If those things that you've thought and said and even done that you've never gotten caught for, you've gotten away with your entire life. I've talked to so many guys that have just committed heinous sins. I had a guy in my office a few years ago, and he came in and he just said, I just got to get something off my chest. As he began to share with me, and he said I could share with other people if it help him. He said, I murdered my sister when I was 12 years old. And I lied about it to my parents. And another man went to prison for my crime. He said, I finally had to confess. And when I confessed, I eventually went to prison for my crime. That man got out. And you know what he said to me? He said, I forgive you. That's how he became a Christian. He saw the forgiveness of the Lord. I mean, imagine that you're sitting in a prison cell for a crime you didn't commit and someone else can set you free and they don't do a thing about it. That's what forgiveness can do. It can transform the very worst situation and turn it into something that honors the Lord. And so we think in our marriages, you know, this is just, uh, it's just too much. I, I can't take this anymore. That's you speaking. That's not God speaking. That's me speaking. That's not God speaking. He is able and we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And there is nothing impossible for God. He can heal any hurt. He can take care of any sin. He can cover anything that has come your way. And he can change it as long as you're willing to let him have it. And obviously this passage is speaking to two people who are believers. You know, people who don't know the Lord. Very obviously this applies to them, but it applies to them without the knowledge of the scriptures and without the understanding that this is what God's take is on this, on this situation. This word that's translated here, is apoluo, and it means divorces. And some people have taken this and said, well, it's just talking about the paperwork itself. That was the Pharisee's argument. They said, well, I got a piece of paper that says I can divorce my wife. I went down and I saw the rabbi. The rabbi said, yeah, it's okay. She burned my toast. Just divorce her. (laughs) And by the way, that's actually how far it went. It got to the place where pretty much anything was a reason for divorce. Which meant marriage was not what God intended. It was simply a 
a contractual obligation, and that's what we've turned it into as a country. It's just a contractual obligation. Let me give you a little secret. You come in for premarital counseling, you sit down with Pastor Jeff, and I find out that you have a prenuptial agreement, that will be the end of our premarital counseling. You know why that is? That's, I don't trust you, and I'm going to build failure into our marriage from the very start. Because you're either all in or you're not all in. It's 100% in. It's not, well, my stuff is my stuff, and it's going to stay my stuff no matter what you do. From God's perspective, your stuff is her stuff, and her stuff is your stuff, because there's only one of you. You became two, and then you're one. You, you see, we build in failure when we start thinking of ourselves. Marriage is other-centered. Our spouses are supposed to matter more than we do ourselves. And I think the big problem we face in our country is we've made it so self-centered. Not one, not one tittle passes away. You see, it's clear that the Jews that heard Jesus use this term, you know, they were sitting there thinking, well, maybe he's just talking about betrothal. You know, maybe they're just, we would call it similar to our engagement, but you need to understand it from a Hebrew perspective. In the Hebrew culture, a betrothed couple was a married couple. That's exactly what Mary and Joseph were. That's why the sin was so open that she was pregnant because there wasn't supposed to be any sexual relationship prior to the actual consummation of the wedding itself. But in God's eyes and the people's eyes, they were already married. God takes it that seriously. And in that specific instance, he said, look, you made a vow. The vow stands from when you made it. And so Jesus says here in this passage, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And why is he saying that? He's really trying to help us understand that the compounding effects of that sin is so far-reaching that to do it for financial reasons or to do it for you know, physical reasons of attraction or to do it for some other reason than this incredible brokenness of the vows that comes through a relationship with someone else that will not be repented of, to do it for any other reason doesn't meet the criteria of the tragedy necessary to break those vows before the Lord. The two are one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's what Jesus said about it. And so he tells them, look, it's because of the hardness of your heart that this whole divorce thing ever, occur- ever occurred in the world. And so in all of this, and I want to really spend some time now bringing into view God's graciousness. Sometime in Israel's history, a divorce was basically allowed to take the place of an execution because that was the original command. And it was both parties. 
If you were in an adulterous relationship, both the man and the woman were taken out and they were stoned. And so God said, there's so much sin in the camp that in my grace, I'm going to allow you to write a certificate of divorce, but it's still not what I want. I'm going to allow it, and I think it went something like this. Because the sin had so infiltrated the children of Israel, there had been nobody left even able to make the decision of who got stoned and who didn't. And I would say to you that our world is much like that right now. There's a lot of people that just, they've gone so far over the edge in selfishness that there's no one left. And praise God, His grace has stepped into our lives. Ultimately, God chooses his mercy to rain down on us. But divorce was never commanded. You know, sometimes it's amazing to me how many times people will come into my office and they'll say, well, you know, God said that I'm supposed to divorce my husband or divorce my wife because they committed adultery. And I will point out to them that's not what it says at all. It says under that condition, it's permissible. It doesn't say you have to. It doesn't even say you should. It says nothing of the kind. Why is that? Because if it did, that is exactly what people would do, and they would still end up in a situation that God doesn't want for them. And so what God really is saying here is, look, I can heal anything if you give it to me. I can even fix adultery. I can repair that relationship. And I hate divorce. I'll permit it if it's the only way left, but it's not what I want. And so as he uses some of these words, what he's really saying to us is, he says, look, I just take this seriously. One of the things that I always do in, in marriage counseling is I go, you know, it would be better right now for everybody if you're not fully in, take some time and make sure you're fully in. That's why I'll always say something at a wedding ceremony like, you're, you're not to take these vows ill-advisedly or lightly. Because you're making him before God. Be better not to make the vow than to break the vow. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, The marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. He's not talking about salvation. So very often, much like with Matthew 18, we find people taking the legalistic view and it just simply can't be true. And let me tell you why I know that's an absolute fact. Jesus himself, Jesus himself, encountered a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Amen? He didn't say to her, depart, you spawn of Satan, take off for hell. He wrote on the ground, we don't know what he wrote. And then he said, 
as one by one the accusers started thinking of their own lives and their own need for his mercy and their own need for his grace. And as Jesus was scribbling, whether he was writing their names or maybe the deeds that they had been, or maybe, in fact, maybe some of them who were turning her in had actually been intimate with her. She seems to have been fairly well known in the town. But what Jesus said to that woman who was caught in the very act was, Woman, where are your accusers? I do not accuse you. She was stone cold guilty, amen? She absolutely, she was caught in the very act. She was stone cold guilty. And Jesus didn't say to her, well, sorry. No heaven for you. He said, go and sin no more. He said, look, today is your your chance to turn. Today is your opportunity to to spin yourself around and go a different direction. Praise God for that grace. Brothers and sisters, there's grace for our failures. God meets the repentant heart with grace and with mercy and with tenderness and gentleness and with love. But he takes marriage very seriously. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul looking at his own life. Saying my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I gladly would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest on me. There's grace. But take that grace and walk in it. Take that grace and don't abuse it. Take that grace and speak that truthful grace to those people who you know may be struggling in this area. Maybe thinking, maybe they're contemplating, maybe you know the intimate details of that life and you believe with all your heart that those two people really know the Lord. If they know the Lord, then God's will for them is to heal their marriage. God's will is not for them to get a divorce. And we need to start preaching that message. We need to make sure that people understand that God can fix anything if we'll surrender it to him. He can undo any hurt. He can take care of any pain. Doesn't mean that the scars won't be there. Doesn't mean that things won't still sting. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences. But God's grace indeed is sufficient for our weaknesses. And he wants to heal every broken marriage. God doesn't want a single marriage to end in divorce. Not one. Not for any reason. Unfortunately, some will, but still not God's plan. God's plan is to take his grace and wash over that weakness, that hurt, that pain, and fix it with his grace. Please remember that when people come to you and they ask you, you know, what should I do? You look them in the eye and you say, brother, sister, 
You cry out to God. You beg for his mercy. You throw yourself at the feet of the cross. You ask him to change hearts, change minds, change situations. You bear as long as you can possibly bear. Doesn't mean you put yourself in harm's way. Doesn't mean you submit yourself to torture or abuse of any kind. But you also don't have to run down to the the court and get your divorce papers the first time there's an argument in your marriage. First time something doesn't go your way. Or the second time, or the third time, or the fifth time, or the tenth time, or even the hundredth time. My grace is sufficient for you. Jesus' take on divorce is thus says the Lord God, I hate divorce. And we as the church need to hate it too. And it needs to be the very last resort. And it needs to be very sparing. It needs to be implemented for one of two reasons. Unrepentant sexual sin or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. All other reasons don't meet the criteria. Everything else should be able to be worked out. Treat marriage like God treats it. It's a covenant contract. He'll never divorce you. Treat your spouse the same way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, just thank you. Lord, these are somber words. They're tough things to hear. Lord, at times our hearts are pierced and pricked. and Lord, I'm sure... I'm I'm virtually positive that there are people here tonight that maybe they're in the throes of divorce. Perhaps they've already filed paperwork. Maybe they're heading down tomorrow to try and dissolve a marriage, vows that they took before you. God, I pray that you'd stop them. Stop them dead in their tracks. Lord, not that those problems would continue, not that there'd be hurt or pain that is glossed over. Lord, that there would be healing and restoration and forgiveness. Those things which so loudly and clearly speak of how much you love us. Lord, help us to have the same type of patience, the same long-suffering, the same kindness, Lord, that you have shown us. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord Jesus, Again, you made it so simple. Help us to keep it simple. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you. And God's people all said.